All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 20 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for October 2016. All right, this is it. This is the last of the old episodes that I had to rebrand. So from here on out, everything's going to be new under the new name, and there won't be any of this awkward cutting things off and removing clips and this, that, and the other. Thank you, everybody, for staying patient and listening to all the old episodes again when I re-uploaded them. I didn't think that that was going to happen, but it did. You guys are awesome. Um, again, just as a reminder, anytime I say uh, mention the Patreon or the Facebook as uncovering unsolved mysteries, just know that that's no longer a active link, and it's uncovering unexplained mysteries. Because I know I probably mentioned it a lot in the podcast in the past, and I just couldn't go and edit every single instance out. But here we go, episode number twenty. Uh, we started off in June, and. You know, here we are already getting into some holiday season things going on. I'm Josh Cannon, and I'm here with Michael Michel, as they might say in France. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You mean Mike? Yeah. um, Oh, you don't like the long name, do you? No, I I don't like the long name because it just reminds me of whenever I got in trouble when I was a kid, and my parents would always bring out the Michael. Oh yeah, you know, we already we already went through yeah, yeah. we went through this in a we earlier did podcast. That. Oh damn, exactly. Um, but anyway, uh, and people might wonder be wondering how I'm doing. I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm still passing my math class barely. Got a C minus. I failed the last two math tests, so that's pretty frustrating. But I feel better about this next one, and I'm going to study some more when I get offline here with Josh and uh, the test is tomorrow. So uh, I guess wish me luck because I really, I want to pass the test this time around. I I don't want to fail it. I mean, I don't want to keep just getting F's. That's not going to help me. So anybody listening (laughs) to this, anybody listening (laughs) to this, um, uh, get a sense right now on Wednesday, even though it hasn't even been recorded or released yet, get a sense that we're recording right now and wish Mike good vibes, even though by the time you hear this, (laughs) It will already be I don't over. Want to be th- yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe if you get it up for thir- on Thursday for the Patreons, I'm, uh, uh, I don't have class until the evening. So. Well, I'm glad yeah. you mentioned Patreon because if you would like, if you find our content worthy of, of monetary value, which I think it can be, especially the perks you get on the Patreon page, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash uncovering unsolved mysteries. And you can become a fan of us on Facebook facebook.com slash uncovering unsolved mysteries we post all kinds of stuff on there updates info these are always the first people to see all this stuff uh and the patrons are the even first -er people to see (laughs) things um and i I have uh i'm thinking about posting a scan of a little comic which is a tie-in unsolved mysteries on the patreon account sometime. Oh yeah, I remember you so, told me about that a long time ago and I still you still never showed me that. But now is the perfect time to do that. It so is. Uh, I will get that uh, taken care of and uh, send that to Josh and he'll post it on Patreon for our Patreon supporters. Mike, you have the login information, bro. You can do it. Oh, too. I know I do. I know I could. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, uh, there w- anyway, I won't mention the disco dancing video. I just don't, I was going to just throw that out there <laughs> for something fun, but I don't really want to tease that as like a big feature of joining Patreon, but just know that there was a video 
of Mike getting his groove on. I thought it was funky. I was going to post on Patreon, but uh, <laughs> that may or may not happen. <laughs> I think it's pretty hilarious because you have the most serious like expression on your face as you're like disco dancing. Uh, That's the whole like, yeah, whole it was point. fierce. I mean, I don't use that word very often, or this might be the first time I've ever used it in my entire life, but it was very fierce. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, gee golly. Well, um, so we we did we brought you the Don Devereux thing last week. I know people have enjoyed that, and they've re- they've reached out and said they've enjoyed it and all. I'm glad because I enjoyed interviewing Don. I've I've went back and I myself have listened to that phone recording that that I made of him. Just because I wanted to hear it again, because I just thought it was so damn interesting. I thought it was awesome. Um, so, yeah, we have on the horizon here, thanks to, I guess, the YouTube channel. Because, uh, Mike, we take these podcasts and we put them up on YouTube. And we're, we're really far behind, because I think we only have episode 7 up or whatever. But anyway. 8. Oh, I eight. need to post episode 9 next. Yeah, the, the ban on my YouTube channel has been lifted, so technically I can start posting those on there too, which... You could. Yeah, I just, I don't know, I just don't think about it. Probably the same reason why you don't post it on there, because you just don't <laughs> think about it. Um, anyway, someone, I guess, reached out to Mike. I haven't seen the comment yet, but he copy and pasted it to me, and uh, it, one, one of our earlier segments, um, one of probably one of our favorite segments, the Tallman House goes... Um, which I, I reflect back to that segment and the, just the god awful audio quality. Uh, it's like, ugh, damn it! Why did why didn't I have that? Why didn't I have that right? You know, on day one. You know, I hate uh, that. But anyway, the that one's gotten that one in the first episode has gotten the most listens, probably because people want to start out on episode one to see, you know, if they're new to the podcast. Oh, what's the newest? They either want to listen to the newest one or the first one, I've noticed, uh, or any one that might pique their interest. The Black Dahlia one gets a lot of plays. But anyway, uh, the Tallman House Ghost one is on uh, Mike's YouTube channel in podcast format. And I guess uh, go ahead and say, like, what happened with that, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure. Well, uh, hold on. Uh, I have to find the comment real okay. quick. Well, while he's doing that, yeah, so, like, you know, people occasionally from the show will, like, reach out to us um, who are on the show they had like an extra at one point, I think. Yeah, an um, extra reached, reached out and said that I think she was the little girl in the uh, the reenactment of the Tallman House. And yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so now we have somebody, I guess, who who was directly involved in the real life Tallman House, kind of like the uh, Bobby Baskin thing that went on for a while there. Um, yeah, that I, I eventually just kind of put the kibosh on it and ended it because that kind of turned into a debacle there a little yeah bit. it did <laughs> but this hopefully so, anyway not... this is a this is a man named noah ray on uh youtube and he said on uh the uncovering unsolved mysteries segment that we did josh and i did on the tallman house he said i'm married to the second youngest daughter her name is actually tiffany tallman alan and debbie are my mother and father-in-law if you would like to talk with her, you can message me. Her parents sold the rights, but the kids did not. So it looks like I'm going to be jumping on the horn again, hopefully, uh, if, if, they'll, if they'll be open to that. They might only be open to messaging, which would be a little unfortunate, because now that I've gotten a taste for the actual person involved, like voice, you know, getting the voice of them on, on the podcast. Just, just let the person know we had, you know, someone who was on the show. on our show so that that might make more people willing to do recorded interviews because of the fact that we actually have had somebody who was actually on the show multiple times on our show 
Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. It's a nice bargaining chip. It yeah. really is. So it looks like I'm gonna be contacting this person. Um, you know, uh, as far as Terry and John go, I'm still totally gonna contact them. But I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little nervous, and <laughs> I definitely want to have my ducks in a row before I contact them. So that yeah. But I am thinking, I am thinking about maybe episode 21, episode 22, kind of in that area for the John and Terry interview. It would have been great if it could have been on 30. 30? Because you're trying to make it, because you're trying to make it a big number, right? I know, or 25. You know, maybe 25. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe record it and have it in the can and, and have it for 25. But I'm looking, you yeah. know, that's that's like another month and a half away. May, I, but then again, maybe it'll fall around Christmas time. I don't know, but that's going to be a nice Christmas present. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would to me and the listeners and to you and everyone else. But yeah, so yeah. I think in the meantime, this person would be a good person to message and, and talk to about that because, uh, you know, that, that that was a really interesting case, the Tom and House Ghost. Essentially, it boiled down to a haunted bunk bed. I mean, that's what it's looking like. When they when the family purchased this bunk bed, uh, that was kind of the advent of all these horrific things that started happening in the house that were very scary. And uh, that's that's just a, a fan favorite. That's one of my favorites. Um, it, it was one of the more genuinely scarier Unsolved Mysteries episodes. Um so to talk to somebody involved in that, who's like the the kid, you know, who's grown up now, that would be neat. I think that's interesting that the parents sold the rights to their story. I, I mean, so there must be a book or movie in existence about this. Or did they sell the rights to Unsolved Mysteries? I don't think I don't think that it works like that with Unsolved Mysteries, uh, where by going on that because if you remember you know the people yeah i just it was just a thought yeah I, I don't think it works that way either but sometimes there's things are different than i could ever imagine them being like sometimes i could think oh there's no way to be like this and then it is so true because you have diane lebanek on on unsolved mysteries but then she she was on wasn't she on sightings or, or bob yeah. exler was on sightings. Yeah. so yeah i mean i think they can be on multiple shows like in that way but i if you're talking like um them you know like optioning your story out for hollywood to pick it up and make a movie out of it then yeah your the rights are sold meaning that um to quote to to kind of reference a seinfeld episode um kramer mm -hmm. sold his stories to uh elaine's boss um uh, Peterman, Mr. Peterman, and then Kramer was no no longer allowed to go around and tell those stories anymore. Uh, it, and Elaine's like, Kramer, those aren't your stories anymore. Those are Peterman's stories. That happened to Mr. Peterman now. And he's like, but they happened to me. And it was kind of <laughs> like, you know, he already, he sold the rights to it. And that's, that's essentially how it works. It sounds crazy to, to like put it like that, but it's true. But I don't remember, of course, I don't stay on top of this stuff. I don't remember a movie or a book or anything coming out about the Tallman incident. It might uh, be out there, but either way, I think I, I think there was uh, there was I think uh, part of me saying there was an episode of the the haunting that dealt with the Tallman house. Oh, you know what that? But again, well, a haunting would make more sense because. Well, no, Haunting is kind of the same format as Unsolved Mysteries, really. Yeah, exactly. Reenactments, a host. It was talked about in the book Haunted America. That that, um, that could be it, because that, that would, they would have, mon they would stand to get monetary gain from that, I would. I by would Michael Norman and Beth Scott. 
Um, but at no time in their research do they link the hauntings to a bunk bed. Instead, it's linked to a, the property being located on or near a former Native American bur- burial ground. God, it's always an ancient Indian burial ground, isn't it? And I guess the Tolmans agreed to share the story with Unsolved Mysteries under three conditions. They were censored during the interview. Their children's names were to be protected by alias. And all reenactments of the experience were to be done by actors playing the Tolman family. I, this segment was actually featured part of a Halloween episode of the show that aired on October 26, 1988. The Tallmans were beset by unwanted attention as a result of earlier ghost hysteria, and which they did not seek. They had turned down a lucrative tabloid offer about their experience as they did not think it right to make any money off their children's misfortunes. Which is not. I mean, it's not It's not right, so, I mean, good for them for... But they still sold the rights later, so... Yeah, eventually. I mean, you know, you have enough money dangling in front of your, your face, you'll do a lot of things. Hey, Mike, that reminds me. I have a super interesting story about um, my, my cousin driving us into a retention pond when he was uh, on something up. Uh, I will sell you that story for five hundred dollars, and I you can you can tell everybody that it happened to you. It'll be you in the car instead of me. Are you interested or anything? Uh, I'm not interested because I don't have five hundred dollars to uh, to pay you. So. Anybody out there, if you want <laughs> if you want my story of the time that I was driven into a retention pond, uh, you can buy that story off me for five hundred dollars. That's all I'm saying. Or you can become a Patreon, and then he'll uh, tell you the story. <laughs> I could. I mean, if that's what you guys want, if you get on there and you you know you you say, "Hey, tell us a story." In all seriousness, I will tell it to you, and I won't charge you five hundred dollars. Anyway, um, enough of the chit chat. Just get to the show. I, I can just hear that right now. I'm back in my mind from some some of the people who have left such gracious reviews on our iTunes. I will say though, I mean, there, we have a lot of reviews on there compared to a lot of these upstart podcasts. So. That's good. It's a good sign. But yeah, there are there are some little catty complaints that I could do without. Um, if you haven't it comes noticed, with the territory that it comes with the yeah, territory. True. Gosh, it's every true. single time you make something for public consumption, you know whether it's on YouTube or a podcast, you're gonna have people who are gonna be critical of what you're doing. Just you know, just to keep that in mind. Roll with the punches. Yeah, that's why that's why it's nice to have you here because you're kind of more seasoned in this area. Because you've been on YouTube for like many years, and you're, yeah, you're I've been used on YouTube for almost pretty much when it first started. So, and I didn't really start doing videos of my own until later, like a couple years later after that. But yeah, I've been I, I'm what you call a veteran. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> well, your subscriber count definitely reflects that. Uh, <laughs> although mine, it, mine's like it's it's weird. I mean, I don't want to talk about this too long, but it, mine's like starting to jump up, and I guess that's what it does. Like once you start, kinda, yeah, it just like quickly. you start getting something. People listen to the podcast, then find you from there, or people see your recent videos or something, and then they like they like what they see and they subscribe. I mean, that's that's how it works. I've just got to mention this real quick. The, I made a video today, a 10-second video on my channel, and in Jacksonville, we have a, a minor league baseball team called the Jacksonville Suns, and they've been called the Suns since the 1960s, and the big buzz in Jacksonville now is that as of today, I don't know who, what kind of crack they were smoking, but the owners have decided to change the name from the Jacksonville Suns to the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. <laughs> I shit you not, there's an official mascot and everything already like drawn out. Wow. Yeah, and and the theme song, oh, as a kid growing up, it was baseball's never been hotter than the Jacksonville Suns. 
So I recorded a video where I'm like, baseball's never been hotter than the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. uh, so did Forrest Gump buy the team or something? I, I know, that's what I saw, uh, Bubba Gump or something. I don't know, man. Like that, that's, that was something that I definitely thought of. That was such a goof on their part. I don't understand that shit. Anyway, um, it's an unsolved mystery. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> Jacksonville, the South. Um, our first segment that we're going to be talking about here uh, was a suggestion a long time ago. I do write these down, people. I just, I, you know, it's just a matter of me finding the segment. You know, I don't have a library of all the segments handy at my fingertips where I can just kind of look every. It's like, yeah, some of them I do have, but it's like I have to kind of pull it out of the archive here. But this one's called Kathy Page. Um, well, this was a lady that happened to anyway, and this was a request. And I finally got around to it. I watched it the other day and I could, I, I kind of got why they wanted me yeah. to talk about this. Cause I, yeah, it's a suspicious car wreck that turns out to be a cover for yeah. murder. Oh, very scary. Mike, you got to warn me before you do that. I wasn't <laughs> ready. Um, so early dawn of May 14th, 1991 police in Vitter, Texas discovered a wreck. The woman behind the wheel was dead. At first glance, it appeared to be a tragic accident, but then anomalies began to emerge. The woman had no obvious wounds, and the car was barely damaged. Hell, even the soft drinks in the cup holders were barely spilled. She wasn't even wearing a seatbelt, yet she was not leaned forward in her seat. It was pretty clear it was a staged incident, according to an investigator. The victim was 34-year-old Kathy Page, who lived only 100 yards from the crash site. When police went to knock on the door, Steve answered, her husband, or ex-husband. He said his wife was not home, and he looked straight down the street to where her car was found, as if he knew that it was already there. When police told him his wife was dead, he seemed quite upset. He cried a few times, and at times he threw himself on the couch in a dramatic way, just crying, but at no point that just did, seems like he's trying to hard. Yeah, there. at no point did the investigators see any sign of tears, and that's that's one thing the investigator said in the segment. He goes, "Yeah, you know, he was crying. He seemed very upset, but I never saw any kind of traces of tears." Now, this is uh, this is a common theme that is brought up in murder cases mm-hmm. that I've seen not only on, on um, I've heard about this happening mostly when I had Investigation Discovery Channel, uh, where, where the the channel, if you have actual cable like Comcast or something, yeah, where they actually, you know, it's just a cable channel about nothing but mysteries and murders, and usually murder centric. Um, yeah, they they say that a lot in the courtrooms on these shows. I've noticed. Um, and they always talk about that detail, you know, in, in all these shows. They're like, yeah, you know, the, the witness was on the stand and he was crying and I was looking, but I didn't see a single tear. And that's always like indicative of of guilt, I guess, like, you know, crocodile tears, as it were, you know. Yeah. And I guess it makes sense, you know, if you're sitting there like, <laughs> I loved her so much, but there's like no tears <laughs> yeah. coming out. It's like, it's kind of fake. Because, exactly. dude, for me, even when I'm watching, like, a, like a, you know, I get I, I can get moved with uh, good movies a lot of times. Yeah, so can I. Yeah, and sometimes even, like, songs. Backdraft makes me cry like a baby at the end every time. That's my brother, god damn it. <laughs> uh, uh, Kurt Russell dying. Oh, man. Uh, American Beauty uh, at the end of American Beauty where, uh, spoilers, uh, spoiler alert, when Kevin Spacey when his character gets shot in the back of the head and then he's doing like the monologue over, 
you know, his his yeah. life and all that. I man, I always cry. Oh, and, and also, I know it's coming every single time I see it because I've seen Top Gun like countless times. But in Goose dies. <laughs> that gets me too. Goose. <laughs> I yeah, I've never seen Top Gun. What a surprise, eh? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to throw in more Canadian colloquialisms because we have a lot a larger Canadian uh, listenership. I've noticed so. Uh, I'm trying to throw that in as much as I can by adding that A in there, but uh, I just offended every Canadian probably. Um, but no, <laughs> uh, at the end of uh, About Schmidt with Jack Nicholson, uh, that I cry, oh my God, mm. do I cry, where he's like, you know, what difference have I made in the world? And then he gets that letter from the kid in Africa. But anyway, um, even when I get like somewhat emotional, dude, even if I'm not like crying or anything like that, like even if I get somewhat emotional, my eyes getting glassy and watery are, it, are is like the first thing that happens to me. Before I even start whimpering and making yeah. body language, my eyes are getting glassy. I'm the opposite. Like I get choked up first and uh, then I, my eyes might get a little bit watery and, and I might cry. But I get this kind of just this feeling you know like i, I just it, it's kind of hard to explain it, it's it's just like you can't really say any words i, I get you it. know yeah so I, this guy wasn't crying so that automatically he's starting to look kind of guilty from that moment on police concentrate on steve page six years later he's still the main suspect for page those years have been an ordeal not a day goes by that he doesn't fend off an accusation that he was the murderer of his wife According to Steve, quote, evidence clearly shows the perpetrator was someone other than Steve Page. Okay, dude, re refer to yourself in third person. That's cool. Yeah, why? What? That just makes you look like a, a total douchebag, really. Yeah. That doesn't help your case. According to the evidence, I don't fit Steve Page as the, uh, which is me, by the way, as <laughs> the. Uh, as the perpetrator. Well, that's that's just how hard he's trying to divert the blame off of him. He's even referring to like a, a, a third person as if it's someone else. Yeah, Steve Page didn't do it. That's not who I am or anything. Like I'm just some different dude on the show. But yeah, that Steve Page guy, I heard he was innocent. So anyway, the residents of Vitter, Texas are convinced Steve Page was the murderer. The family feels like he'd be in jail right now had it not been for his relationship with the police department that therefore dirtied the investigation. Kathy and Steve Page were married for almost 13 years. They had two daughters and seemed like the perfect family. According to Steve, he and Kathy had drifted apart and she was no longer happy in the role of being his wife. Now, I can kind of hear some uh, SJWs out there going like, Hey, that's not her only role, buddy. But that's how the show worded it. I'm not, hey, I know yeah. it sounds a little weird. Women have a lot more roles than just a well, being a wife. Some SJWs are reading too far into things anyway nowadays. Like, they'll just look for anything that they could possibly be offended by. It's the cult of outrage. That's They're true. Like, oh, oh, I'm outraged. I'm so offended by the fact that Unsolved Mysteries only said that she was unhappy with her role as a wife. Oh. Yeah, I mean. It's... Like, if they added something in after that, it would just feel forced, wouldn't it? It would have I mean, felt like a fucking... Uh, damn it. It would have felt like a freaking run-on sentence. I'm trying to watch my freaking mouth, people. I'm not editing that out either. Um, it would have it would have felt forced, you know, if they said Kathy had drifted apart and she was no longer happy in the role of being his wife and a working mother and this and that. And it's like, I, I don't know, whatever. Um, I, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Like, I, I personally, you know, I was like, huh, 
That is kind of weird how they worded that, but whatever. Uh, according to Steve, quote, she was no longer happy. She wanted to find out who Kathy was. We're, we talked about separating for a short period of time to find out who she was. So apparently Steve just likes referring to everybody in third person. That's what I'm learning here. He's big on the third person. Uh, Kathy's sister, Sherry, though, disagrees. Quote, Kathy was moving on with her life at that point because the decision was made for the divorce and that in itself was a relief off her back and she was making plans for that. Um, Steve moved out of the house, but their relationship remained friendly. The next day, Kathy asked Steve to babysit while she went out with one of her girlfriends. <coughs> lie. Uh, quote, she left at, a, this is according to Steve, she left at approximately 11.15, 11.30 to head to Beaumont. By 4.15 a.m., Kathy Page was dead. When her body was found, she wasn't wearing makeup or jewelry. The autopsy showed she'd been strangled, her nose broken, her eye blackened. She had blood on the inside of her underwear, Ugh, gross, but no blood on the rest of her clothes. So obviously, you know, the girlfriend going to her girlfriend's house, this is, you know, she's not going to tell Steve where she's really going. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, that doesn't look like something from a car accident. Especially yeah. a car that doesn't even look like it was really harmed that much. I mean, according to the to one of the guy, the police officer, uh, Detective Sergeant uh, Ray Mosley, who was uh, a sergeant for the Vider Police Department at the time of the crash, he says, being no, no damage to the interior of the vehicle and very little damage to the exterior of the vehicle and the deepness of the ditch, plain to see this is a staged incident instead of an accident. So at this at that point, they felt that they probably had a questionable death. Right, and and we'll we'll get into like you know her lack of makeup and jewelry. We'll get into that at, towards the end. So a leading theory of the investigators was that she was killed at another location, cleaned up, redressed, and her car was rolled into the ditch. Which, by all accounts, yes, it definitely would have been rolled into the ditch if the drinks weren't even spilled. It didn't crash. There's no way. Yeah. What's more, Kathy had sexual intercourse before her death. It was then discovered that Kathy did not, in fact, go to see her girlfriend. She instead went to see a boyfriend in a motel in Beaumont, Texas, about 10 minutes away from Vitter. The boyfriend acknowledged that he and Kathy made love that night, which, again, Unsolved Mysteries, I, I love you guys. I love I love how you use that terminology. Like, the boyfriend acknowledged that he and Kathy made love that night. Like, like, <laughs> like I'm thinking some, like, Barry White, like, oh, yeah, baby, tonight you so win or whatever uh you know they they, they didn't uh, have uh, intercourse or sex so or some everything. panty dropping music yeah really. they they made love <laughs> you know there was there was a, a, a shag carpet and some some champagne and you know Come on, baby yeah We're gonna make love tonight. <laughs> exactly <laughs> um the boyfriend also passed a polygraph of flying colors so the boyfriend stepped up and he said yeah we had sex and uh and yeah it was good and yeah i'll take your polygraph test so, yeah, I'm Bonder. I'll take a polygraph test. I ain't lying. Yeah. <laughs> so, the autopsy included one critical detail, though. Kathy's sex partner, and I don't know how they were able to tell this. Apparently, this, yeah. this is something that is able to be deciphered, though. Kathy's sex partner had had a visectomy. Kathy's a vasectomy. Boy Kathy's boyfriend had <laughs> not had a visectomy. But you know who did? Steve Page. Steve Page had a vasectomy. All right. Diamond Dallas Steve Page. <laughs> <laughs> he had had a vasectomy months earlier. The diamond cutter was taken to his 
this area down there. Due to his sack, yeah. When questioned, <laughs> Steve admitted to having sex with Kathy. Quote, she was getting out of the shower and I had approached her about sex and we had sex before she left, before she even got dressed. Well, that's um, kind of messed up, really. Did he force it on her or was she like, oh, yeah, I just took a shower, but okay, I'll get dirty again. Yeah, well, and that's the whole thing. When Kathy's sister is calling BS on that because uh, her sister is quoted by saying, I personally don't believe that happened. She wouldn't have been with Steve before being with another man. Yeah. She hadn't been with Steve in a long time and he had been sleeping on the couch. Him coming over was more of a kindness gesture to see the kids rather than to even be around Kathy. So that's, yeah, it that's, wasn't a wasn't a sex call, or right? Anything like that. It wasn't like, hey, you want to come over and you know try to seduce me? It was like, yeah, you know, these are your kids too. I guess come over and watch them. Don't touch me. Um, although you got to know, I, I guess with with these kind of situations, in retrospect, probably would have been a better idea to hire a babysitter. I mean, yeah, I don't know how much I would have trusted. But at the same time, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you had a problem with the relationship, but they'd remained friendly for. A long time afterwards, so I mean, but you I can see but, why she didn't assume. I just know how relationships that, work, and I, I know that that Steve, especially being the guy who was broken up with, I know there was probably some butt hurt on his part still that he yeah, that he wasn't yeah. going to let on. Well, definitely, but you wouldn't think that butt hurt would lead into murder. Well, right, and that's that's the difference. You know, it's one thing to be angry and name call; it's another thing to take it to the point that he allegedly took it to um quote the reason they're coming down on me is because i'm the husband i'm the estranged husband to make it even worse in her actions i am being blamed for her actions she was out seeing another guy so therefore it could only have been me i must have found out somehow and became enraged and committed murder that's steve saying that and that's something I actually do kind of want to, like, just shine a little spotlight on real quick. How exactly would he have known where she went? Um, yeah. This was the 90s, you know, when you could still reasonably disappear and not be tracked and tagged everywhere. It does explain further in the segment that that Steve discovered um, two phone numbers that were written down. But, yeah, I'll, I'll just, I'll get to that in a second. So... Steve Page has his own theory on what happened. Quote, I received threats on the phone that the same thing that happened to my wife could have happened to me. There's a name of a person here in Beaumont that was bandied about that could have been the person who did this, end quote. And then he kind of alludes to a family member of an Italian uh, uh, family in Texas who's associated with the mob. So he's basically mm. saying he's basically saying that you know there was talk a, a, amongst certain people yeah, that it was this so, mob family. That that sounds like that sounds made up to me. About as made up as his fake crying earlier. Right. Looks like he's taking notes from uh, Tom Cruise and the during that Oprah segment where he's like jumping on the couch and everything. Uh, <laughs> well, that's just craziness right there. This this guy's taking a, a, a page from uh, every deceitful lying person i think it's like he got his acting uh notes from a soap opera on television yeah exactly yeah well my- um but really yeah the thing is oh a mafia like oh that's just convenient oh there was this mafia that was around the, the area some italian mob family and they they killed her i didn't do anything the, the mafia did it that's just as that's just as likely as uh 
as a typical um, tactic that investigators have talked about before, like when someone will do something wrong, like like of the opposite race, say like say like a white person, you know, uh, is a suspect and and he like murders somebody else or whatever. He'll he'll tell the police like, oh, a black guy did it. You know, that's like yeah. just a tactic that is used by. And person. also, I mean, the whole Mount Mafia. Like, does that even exist? Oh, the, I've received threats on the phone saying that the same thing that happened to my wife could happen to me. Do you have any proof of this? Right, and then you got to look into what's the motive of the mob knocking this this woman out. Now, I mean, you look at someone like Don Devereaux, you know, the mob... Oh, yeah. The, the Arizona mob, to, which was a real thing uh, that he was telling me about in the phone conversation. That That's something that's more credible, because Don is, an, is a journalist, and he was snooping around, and he was... They had reason to take yeah. him out, but... But the mob in Vidor, Texas? Is there even a mob in Vidor, Texas? <laughs> yeah, I'm I just... mean, it's not even like a, you know, it's not even like a big city, you know? It's, it's not, not like Arlington, Dallas it's or... not Texas, you know, it's it's not Dallas, yeah, it's not Arlington, it's not Houston. Like, come on now. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's just no motive. I mean, the the mob, you know, they they don't always go for murder to 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 they they the mob like any other criminal, they want I think they could, Yeah, mob murder isn't the first choice usually. Yeah, they want as little light on them as possible. They want as little heat on their backs as possible. So, if they feel they can, you know, if there are easier and better ways to, you know, deal with someone besides murder, they're going to go with that route first. They're only going to murder somebody if there's some deep, like Chuck Morgan, you know, they uh, from the Don Devereaux conversation, Chuck Morgan was murdered as a precautionary measure. Chuck Morgan hadn't yeah. even done anything wrong yet. They just murdered it's him. A, it's a last resort. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they did that as like, well, this guy knows a lot and eh, might as well kill him, you know, bef because he might not be the greatest guy if he does, you know. And I think they already did try to intimidate him, you know, with that or that earlier thing where they put like drugs in his throat or whatever. Yeah. So apparently that wasn't enough. So, you know, they decided, all right, well, we're going to make sure, double sure that he won't blab to anybody. Right, and if the mob did do it, they certainly would have done a, a better job than than something yeah. like this. I mean, look at that. Like, is this the Keystone Cops mob? Is this the Keystone mob? Like, what does that mean? Is this the Three Stooges mob? Like, what is this over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, this this kind this this murder, how it was done, it was done in such a way to where it was almost like the person had some kind of a had some kind of care for the victim you know what i mean like yeah like but they, at the same time they didn't know what the hell they were doing yeah. in terms of trying to cover it up so uh though though it has been more than six years well at the time of the segment though it has been more than six years since the death of kathy page the family keeps the case alive um they they post a gluttony of accusatory billboards blaming the vitter police of collusion and incompetence and they actually show on the segment. Uh, they actually, I guess, the crew, unsolved crew, went to Vitter, Texas, and they they film they and they have all these billboards like as you yeah. enter, and it says like you know murder murder is legal in Vitter, Texas. Why not? And saying other stuff, accusing the police and all this other kind of stuff. And um, so it's it's pretty inflammatory, you know, stuff. But hey, you know, I mean, if the shoe fits, why not? I mean, uh, mm. I don't see anything too horribly wrong with that if they feel like there was that much incompetence and uh, a few examples of this incompetence would be 
Uh, for instance, when the police f uh, photographed the accident scene, there was no film in the camera. Uh, it took police three years to convince the DA to ask for a warrant to search the Page house. Plus, it's been known in Vitter that Steve Page's parents were good friends with the chief of police. Although, not surprisingly, the department denies covering for anyone. Um, mm -hmm. Quoting Steve Page again, he says, My opinion of the case is they decided I did it from the very beginning, and they only investigated what would lead them down the road to believe that I did it. They viewed everything from that angle. They didn't view it with an open mind. Today, Kathy's family has been fi has filed two wrong death lawsuits against Page, uh, both cases ended ended in mistrial, and there is a third trial, but a date hasn't been set. Although yeah. I'm sure that that um, I'm sure that's that's you know come and gone since the recording. Yeah, of that Kathy's thing. family also has completely different ideas of what happened. And Steve, uh, Kathy's sister, she believes there's only one possible scenario. This is uh, quoting her. She says, "I was talking to a sister-in-law of Steve's. She said that she knew for a fact that Steve had made two two phone calls." Steve called this one number, and the girl answered, and he hung up. And then the second number was called, and they said the same name of a hotel, and a name of the hotel that they mentioned earlier, and he hung up. And so he already knew where she might be or was. So apparently he did know where she was. So that's why he knew about the tryst or whatever. Kathy's father, James Fulton, believed that Steve then became physical. I feel like she came in that night came in the back door and after she had gone and parked the car and he was asleep sitting in a chair in the front room. And when she went on in the bathroom and changed clothes, took her makeup off, took her jewelry and all of that off. He heard her probably in the bathroom and he got up and demanded sex with her or whatever and got into a fight. And then her family believed the fight escalated and then Steve proceeded, proceeded to rape Kathy. They also believe he strangled her in the process I mean, that kind of does explain the makeup, jewelry, all of that, change clothes. Yeah, I mean, it does explain it. Uh, I mean, and then the two phone numbers, though, like, and, and I, I completely skipped over that, so I'm glad you brought that up, because I, I realized on my notes here, I just completely skipped over, like, two paragraphs I wrote down. Um, yeah, those two phone numbers that he found, you know, one was to the girlfriend and one was to the motel, and so, you know, being the... You know, just the fact that he called those numbers just showed that, you know, he still had some butt hurt in him over this case. You know, he... He, he was obsessive. It wasn't just butt hurt now. He was getting obsessive Right. About it. He wasn't ready to let go. And although on the segment he comes across, you know, it, these people come across as the way that they want to come across to appear innocent. So on the segment he comes across cool as a cucumber. But, you know, you just don't... You just don't do that. You don't go uh, babysitting for your ex-wife and you're just so okay with the, the divorce and then you're like calling. Not only do you notice some numbers written down, but then you, you actually call them. You know, he calls the first one and hears a woman's voice and thinks, okay, that must be the girlfriend. And then he calls the second one and finds out it's a motel. Yeah, she might have been at the motel, but how did he know that? He assumed, you know, he assumed that she was yeah, at the motel. Exactly. And got enraged and uh i don't know that theory fits to me that's the only theory that could fit i'm not saying that he did it because i don't think i can say that because he hasn't no i can't either there's no there's not a lot of there's not enough proof but i mean he did have a motive it seems like it he had the motive seem... he had the opportunity and he had yeah. the means 
So really, when it comes and it looks to- like she was strangled. That's what she was strangled. She had a black eye, broken nose. So, yeah. And then when he killed her, he realized, "My God, what have I done?" And at that point, he set about making it look like an accident. And because of the police incompetence, now they never mentioned this on the on the actual segment, but they never mentioned anything about fingerprints. No, they never mentioned anything about the police taking fingerprints. So you got to. Well, maybe they were right in the whole thing where it wasn't just incompetence; it was corruption. Where you know this guy was uh, Steve Page was buddies with the cops, and so they kind of just swept swept it under the rug. Definitely would not be the first time in Unsolved Mysteries history where a small town uh, has the police uh, in in their back pocket and and use them for their advantage. The Bordello murders are the first. Yeah. Uh, example that comes to my mind of the prostitutes that were murdered in uh, in um, wherever that city was. I will be angry if the name of the city was Bordello, and I just anyway. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, the most likely scenario, she ca- came home, you know, as you said, took the jewelry off, took makeup off, and then they got into that, you know, that 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 exchange, and it would also make sense that there would be seminal fluid in her from somebody who had a bisectomy, and he had, you know, it just it it, it all makes sense. Um, of course, his side of the story is the sex was consensual, and it was before she went out, but yeah, again, I mean. That town was Oak Grove, Kentucky, in the Bordello murders. Oh, case. okay. The, the, it was called the Bordello Massage Parlor, I believe. Okay. Oh, thanks. It was that. called the New Life Massage Parlor. So what the hell were the Bordello murders? <laughs> was that a completely different segment that I'm thinking No, of? that's the same segment. They just called it the Bordello murders because the massage parlor was, to, was a Bordello slash massage parlor. Oh, is it? Okay. I think Josh just learned a new word today. Um <laughs> Yes, and I've started referring to myself in third person now. I figure I'll try it out. <laughs> well, apparently this case is, of course, still unresolved, It's uh, sadly. But in 1999, Steve Page was found financially liable for Caffey's death in a civil court. He was ordered to pay $200,000 to Caffey's family. Steve Page is still living in Texas, and he has yet to be charged criminally for Caffey's murder. Tragically, Pam's daughter, Monica, died in 2011 at the age of 28. Which Pam, or Monica, was never uh, shown on the show. No. It was only uh, Sherry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just because they were awarded that money doesn't mean they're ever going to see it. Yeah. Whenever you you win a civil case, and this is something I kind of learned when a friend stole my guitar a long time ago, and I wanted to sue him... um, Took him to judge judge Judy. <laughs> no, but but basically, um, I, I just did a bunch of research and asked around, and when when the judgment is in your favor and they are ordered to pay you, you basically have a license to hunt them down uh, for the money. Um, it, you don't, because when I was younger, I thought, oh, they won that amount in this court case, and I thought that they just i don't know turned over a check or sit, figured out some kind of payment system oh no you can totally be a, a bum and just buck all that and not ever they, they they might never see a dime from steve like what they can do though is they can go after him and they can uh do various things like they can um try to levy his bank account they can do wage garnishments they can do stuff like that um 
assuming that Steve has a an income flow. Now, the problem with my friend who stole my guitar was he was a bum and he had no job and he had nothing. So mm-hmm. you can't bleed, uh, you can't get blood from a, a turnip, as they say. Uh, or Blood from a stone. Blood from a stone, there you go. Um, so there was nothing I could do. I mean, he, he stole the guitar, he pawned it for drug money, he had already did the drugs. I mean, that it was done. It was a done deal. I mean, there was not... Uh, well... Yeah, you know, physically beating his ass was the only recourse that I had. <laughs> but I mean, really, and you're gonna get blood. You're gonna get blood that way. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, then then he could, you know, then I could end up in jail for assault. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, I decided yeah. not to go that route, even though I really wanted to. Yeah, I haven't really had to take anybody to civil court, or neither has my parents. But it, this this says it. I did have an instance where someone that my stepmom knew, she stole a TV of ours. Because she was actually, my stepmom was nice and liked to give people help who were, you know, working with her, volunteering at the mission and things like that. Well, sometimes the people volunteer the mission are not really all there or, you know, are volunteering at the mission and living on the street because they're drug addicts. Well, she opened, you know, opens our house to her and I can't even believe she even let her do that. So apparently... I come home from work one day and I see this note in the little, not really a mailbox, but it's this kind of thing where you guess you could put mail in that's like hung up next to the door. And I find this note and it says basically blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. I stole your TV, um, but I didn't touch any of your son's stuff. Damn. She <laughs> actually- I thought was. She actually said, like, in print, I stole your yes, TV. Yes, yes, I thought it was hilarious. It was hilarious. I will never forget it. And either with my stepmom or my dad, because it was just so... <laughs> it was like this old monitor TV that we got from Goodwill years ago or something. She stole that. And then, like, was going to, like, pawn it or something. I know she needed the money. I stole the TV. I'm sorry, I needed the money. But I didn't steal any of your son's stuff. <laughs> hope she realizes that she's not getting anything for that tv i mean no i know it was just it was, just, it was hilarious unless I, she I has to... a time machine and she can go back to like <laughs> 1980 where like cr tvs were still worth anything yeah it was, it was... All right, well, that's that case. Uh, You shouldn't (laughs) steal from people, and if, uh, you know, somebody sues you and they win, then obviously you probably did something wrong and you should pay them. (laughs) I don't know. uh, Well, well, speaking of stealing, that leads into directly into our next case we're going to feature on the podcast, the case of the Illinois fortune teller scammers. Uh, This is uh, two women, uh, mother and daughter combo, uh, Ann Coricelli and Lena Marie Wilson. Uh, Ann Coricelli and her mother, Lena Marie Wilson, are a fraudulent fortune-telling team who were wanted for scamming 17 residents of Peoria, Illinois, throughout the 1980s out of over $600,000. Damn. So, yeah, I know. It, it's a crazy amount of money. For that time now, especially. Like the, I mean, well, yeah. It, it, yeah. And even now, I mean, can you imagine six hundred thousand dollars? I I would kill right now to have not not really kill, but figuratively. Yeah, I mean, with six hundred figuratively 000... kill for six hundred thousand dollars, folks. Our, I wouldn't literally our... kill <laughs> for our for San Francisco 000. listeners. Uh, if those of you who listen to our podcast in San Francisco, I mean, six hundred thousand that would buy you at least two months' rent in an apartment there. So, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
You you could get a pretty decent studio apartment in San Francisco <laughs> for six hundred thousand. So uh, so yeah, these uh, Illinois. This is uh, how this uh, sort of tale begins. Um, a lot of us might be curious to see what happens behind the door of, for- of, of fortune teller business. Wonder what our fortune could possibly be. But some people are more interested in fortune taking rather than fortune telling. Across the United States each year, tens of thousands, maybe even more victims, are bilked out of millions of dollars by fraudulent fortune tellers. Two of these victims, two out of the 16 from Peoria, Illinois, were embarrassed by their own naivete and requested anonymity for the show, uh, for this particular segment, so their identities are unknown. But their stories are tales of such brash and brazen fraud that they should be known by everyone so that they can be prepared to not f- only f- to not fall for the scam if they do happen to come across individuals like Ann Coricelli and Lena Marie Wilson. The stage for the scam was set in Peoria, Illinois on August 1987. The victim, a respected school teacher whom the show called Karen, who had been devastated emotionally and physically by a car accident. Her friends led her to a fortune teller named Ann Coricelli, who was reputed to have psychic abilities and would be able to help her get her life back on track. But instead, Anne sent her life and her finances spiraling out of control. Karen herself even thought that the last thing she would ever do was go to a psychic for help. But she, just like many other victims, thought that it it was just 10 bucks. What do I have to lose? And just like many of these sad cases, she didn't only just lose 10 bucks. She lost a lot more than that. And that's the thing. A lot of these people are just really gullible. It's they're the perfect target. The these uh, fraudsters, these scammers, these scam artists. They know what to look for. They see these people who are desperate. They are willing to do anything for help or to get them out of the situation that they're in. And they prey upon these people. These are very sad, tragic tales. They really are. You feel so bad for these people. Yeah, I mean... At the same time, you also feel like, well, how could you fall for that? That's pretty dumb. But at the same time, you still feel bad. Yeah, like, much much like Nelson DeCloud from that we talked about last week, They the, these cult leaders or, or scammers, fortune tellers, yeah. whatever it may be, they're preying upon these people who need answers, who need help, who who are, don't have a direction in life, and and this is very, you know, the, I'd say the people who go to psychics and stuff like that, uh, I say they're like maybe one step above the people who are like on the verge of joining a cult. They're they're just, yeah. they have their stuff together just a little bit more, but they are they are heading down that road of desperation. You don't just go to a, a psychic uh, on a lark, you know. It's kind of something that you, or maybe you do go on a lark. I don't know, but to me, it seems like these uh, these people who end up getting scammed, these people who are willing to give money more than what the going rate is to read your fortune or whatever the yeah. hell. Uh, these these particular people are definitely on that road to, you know, I am so desperate, uh, I'll do just about anything. Yeah, and and this is not saying that. All fortune tellers or all psychics are all going to be scamming you and taking your money. I mean, there probably are some actual nice people who just do it and, you know, maybe they have a genuine passion for it or whatever and actually want to help people. So there probably are people like that out there. Then these type of individuals, like the Coricellis, give those people a bad name. Um, 
So Anne Coricelli, she began her scam by telling Karen that she had a curse on her. And that is why she was dealing with so much pain, strife, and financial struggles in her life. Karen herself even believed Anne's words, going as far to say, at this point in time, I would have believed anything that she said. When she said someone has put a curse on me, I believed it. It was an answer to my problems. And this is all too common. These scammers find individuals like Karen and prey upon their insecurities and their current situation in life and are able to manipulate these people into doing things that you wouldn't even think of doing even in your wildest dreams. Things that included taking ritual baths with scented oils, blessing the doors, the windows, the cars, and even people with holy water. And that wasn't all. Each time Karen saw Anne, Anne kept giving Karen more things to do. Anne told Karen to come up with her to a nearby bridge and bring $4,000 wrapped in a white handkerchief. That's a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, that'd help, that'd, that would pay off my student loan right now. Just boom, $4,000. Student loan is paid off. I'd appreciate that. Yeah. I, mean, I, I can't even imagine giving up that amount of money to anyone, let alone somebody I barely even know who just told my fortune a few times yeah. and made me get in a bath full of scented oils and made me look like a complete dork, blessing doors and windows and people. Yeah, I mean, for $4,000, our L.A. listeners could stay two days in a nice, uh, pretty <laughs> nice uh, apartment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is yeah. a lot of money. Um, so Anne told Karen that she had to destroy the money because Satan was of the earth. And in order to control him and lift the curse he has put on her, she had to destroy the dirty money. And in order to destroy this so-called dirty money, Anne and Karen threw the money, all $4,000 of it, off the bridge. No! <laughs> I'd be jumping after that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Josh would be like Jim Carrey in the mask when he threw the mask off the bridge and then jump in the water and try to go grab it again. Hello, answers <laughs> to my car payment. <laughs> <laughs> Karen never saw that money ever again. In fact, she is convinced that the money wasn't even thrown off the bridge, that Anne kept the money for herself. Tragically, Karen is not alone. She was just one victim of a mother and daughter series of scammers, the Coricellis, consisting of Anne and her mother, Lee Marie Wilson. Another victim of the Coricellis was a 69-year-old woman whom the show called Joan. Joan had come into a lot of money due to the life insurance policy her second husband had set up for her after she died. After he died. <laughs> yeah, she died and then she gets... No. Nah, that's <laughs> Which made her a perfect target for Anne and Lee Marie Wilson. Like many of these victims, the sense of, secu the sense of security still didn't make her feel happy in her life. So she was looking for some way to lift her spirits. So she too decided to go to the local fortune teller for help. I don't know why that's like the first she must have tried other things because that's what I think is that these people have tried other things to make things better in their lives. Yeah, then they get desperate. They go to then they do really crazy things like go to a fortune teller. So when Joan visited the fortune tellers, they were operating under the name of Calvin. Uh, the inside of the home that also represented the business was furnished with all kinds of religious paraphernalia, including pictures of Jesus that hung up on the walls. And this is a common theme, too. These scam artists, they they hide under the guise of religion. 
Because there's a lot of people who are Christians, people believe in Jesus, Jesus, they believe in the Bible, they believe in religious stuff. And so when they make this make themselves appear as if they're saintly or, or they're here to help them or they're Christians, that that opens the door up, you know, for these fortune tellers and these scammers to be able to scam people because people they st- people some people they actually they they're willing to more trust people they're willing to trust people more if they are religious well i think too from the religious angle i think some people um feel like if they if they are christian and they believe in god they they might have some reservations about going to see a fortune teller because they feel like maybe they're getting their powers from the devil yeah you would think so too but that these people's fears will be calmed and would be eased by going into the fortune teller uh business and then seeing that there's pictures of jesus yeah, on the wall so, okay uh, so these powers are sense. these powers are, are of god and instead of of satan you know so yeah, yeah exactly. it makes sense why they would have that religious stuff up there but most of these people aren't religious in the, in the slightest so the first uh, at least the people are scamming these people uh the first employee that joan met was Anne. And Corcelli again, who took her fortune and told her the typical bad news type of fortune and said that she saw something bad in the cards. She then had her grandmother, a.k.a. Mrs. Wilson, talk to Joan and tell her that there had been a curse put on her life that had been in effect for over 40 years by a former girlfriend of her first husband. She was even able to name who it was. Of course, the fortune tellers did the typical things and said, you've had something tragic happen in your life. You've lost someone very important to you, haven't you? And then they say, yes, I lost my husband. You know, it's the same kind of stuff that the guys who talk to the dead do. You know, they have these questions that lead on these people. You're, you're James Von Prague's and pe- but honestly, I believe James Von Prague and George Anderson. I, I believe those guys. There's there's something to them because they the, and those are guys that we'll talk about here soon on the podcast because we haven't really done a good psychic. Well, one yeah, yet. I mean, you have the guy uh, crossing over. What, what's his name? Jordan or something? That guy was clearly. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know who. You, or or um, yeah, I know you talk the TV guy. Yeah, because he had a show on Sci Fi Channel. I know his last name is Jordan, but I can't Sci-fi remember. Sci-fi got really shitty in the 2000s, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, they still were showing sightings reruns, I remember, so there, there was still that. That's but, yeah. Um, But anyway, her grandma, uh, Anne's grandmother, actually her mother, uh, talked to Joan, said her that, told her that there was a curse put on her life, an effect for over 40 years by her, by the girlfriend of her first husband, and just like Karen before her, Joan was told to do many wild things to remove this curse, like tie a string in a knot three times. I don't know why that would do anything. Take a $1 bill, a $5 bill, a $10, and a $20 bill and rip them in half, all while dressing up like a complete doofus wearing a white sheet around her neck, fill a shoebox with dirt, and leave it in her garage for three days. So these were things that she was told to do. These are those wild things that she was told to do to remove the curse. All of these wild things were distractions and ways to keep Joan vulnerable to the scam. The Coricellis did everything possible to make Joan believe that not only was she cursed, but that her money meant nothing. So when uh, when she tore, tore the bills in half, Miss Wilson actually performed a sleight of hand trick that made it appear 
that the money had miraculously repaired itself and that the amount had multiplied. And so this further emphasized the religious aspects of the of this fortune telling scam. Uh, this and uh, Joan herself even got on her knees in front of an altar and prayed. And, all, all very, you know, cunning, very calculated slight, slides of hands and mind manipulation being used throughout. Exactly. This. So it, and that's what, when I first saw this, I was like, definitely wanted to talk about this because it was just so brazen and so brash. And like I said, cunning and and it was crazy. It, it was just unbelievable that this woman just bought into all of this. And so... She after she did the sleight of hand trick, of course, you know, she then did uh, Mrs. Wilson then told Joan, you know, to pour some dirt in a shoebox and leave it in her garage for three days. I, I That would be the point where I would be like, really? No, I, I would even think something was wrong from the beginning. But then again, I'm thinking from an outsider perspective. I'm not in the desperation that these people are. Right. I'm not in that state of desperation. And who knows? Sometimes you do crazy things. You're easily manipulated in that instance. So this shoebox of dirt, well, Miss Wilson came over to Joan's garage with a pitcher full of water, and she poured the water onto the box of dirt in order to see if the devil was in there. Oh, my God. I, I know, like This is like just ridiculous, silly stuff right here. She took a stick, and she moved the dirt around, and then the devil appeared. In the form of food coloring and corn syrup that made it look like the water had turned to blood. But since Joan was so deeply caught in the web of this scam, she believed everything. She actually believed the devil himself was inside a shoebox full of dirt in her garage. Yeah, you know, I mean, once once they have you at that point... You know, uh, once, uh, you know, because obviously she would have never done the shoebox of dirt day one. She would have ran out instantly. This is a yeah. series of breaking down the person and, and their sense of logic and reasoning. They break it down slowly over time until before you know it, you're pouring water into a box of dirt in your garage that's been there for a week. I mean, it's the same concept of these cults as I was mentioning earlier. You know, yeah. at first, you know, would Jim Jones, if, if Jim Jones had been like, all right, you guys, uh, we're moving to somewhere in South America. You're not allowed to talk to your family anymore. And, uh, oh, by the way, you can't leave. If he had said that on day one, people would have been like, hell nah. But he Well, and also if he said it on day one, you can't leave. And also... Uh, it's one point in time, I'm going to make you drink this punch, and you, you will die. Yeah, cyanide lace Kool-Aid, and yeah, you and your, yeah. So, it's, it's a, it's a, a massaging, uh, process, it's a, a, a yeah. you know, a process of just, you know, slowly Process getting... of elimination in some ways. Yeah, you're, you know, you're, it's a grooming process, if you will, uh, to, to get people to start kind of thinking in these different radical ways. And over time, you know, it, you, it, it's like the frog who starts off in the water and as it begins to boil, the frog just stays in the water yeah. and, and dies instead of uh -huh. just throwing the frog in the boiling water directly and it jumps right out because it knows, ow, this is really hot. But over time, yeah. it, it just, it just stays in the water until it's a process of manipulation. That's really what it is. Yeah. So, and here is where the thing, where things turn from silly to sinister. Mrs. Wilson, after showing her proof that the devil was in Joan's life, she then started to ask for money. 
because money was what she needed to lift the curse. All those other things that Joan did weren't enough because the money would give her more power. And the more money she got, the more powerful she became. And then she would be able to rid the devil from Joan's life once and for all. Over the course of a year and a half, Joan gave Lena Marie over $81,000 in cash, most of her jewelry, and even bought her a new Cadillac. Eighty-one grand. Stunning. How do you justify the new Cadillac? <laughs> how do you justify the new Cadillac? How how is that how does that play into the curse? Honestly, how does that play into Satan? You know, hey, I need a, a new car, but no, it can't be a reasonably priced Camry. It must be a Cadillac. <laughs> and uh, I've always, I mean, uh, Satan hates the color red, so it should be blue. Yes, a blue Cadillac. You know, I mean, it's just, come on, people, wake up. I mean, yeah, I mean, you would think they would wake up, but like you said, these people have been gone through a process of manipulation. They... They 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 can't get out. They're you know the, they're the frog in in the, in the boiling water. Well, too, I think I think another aspect of it has to be something to the extent of if the person believes these curses, and they believe uh, yes. you know, that people have this power at, at this point. Then they they might also think, well, if I just ditch at this point, if I just leave, maybe this person can use their powers against me and make my life, yeah. you know, even worse than what it was before I even came to see him in the first place. Well, there's other fraud cases, I think, that are discussed on the show that are like that, where I think it was more of a Hispanic. I think this was a Hispanic couple, too, I think. But the other one was a Hispanic, like in a Hispanic neighborhood. And there, there was this sort of thing where if you don't do what I want you to do, I, I'm going to curse you and your family type deal. So anyway... Uh, after she gave uh, Lena Marie this ridiculous amount of money, eighty-one thousand dollars in cash, most of her jewelry, and brought her a brand new, bought her a brand new Cadillac, and uh, you know, you would think, all right, is this enough money? Right, this is enough. But no, uh, Lena Marie would continue to manipulate Joan and continue to take money from her, uh, and somewhat willingly because she, you know, she had manipulated Joan so perfectly that. Joan was just willing to give anything to her. And according to Joan herself, Marie had the type of personality that made you feel like she was helping you. And I believed in her. She had me so convinced, I believed everything. She had me so controlled, and anything she asked me to do, I would do. And with this anything, included handing over the last of her life savings, $40,000 to Lena Marie which Lena took from Joan, put it in her pocket, and took out fake money or bundles of paper, threw those into a burn barrel, and lit the money on fire. Because the money had to be burned. Because, you guessed it, it was evil. <laughs> Joan tearfully admits how, many, how manipulated that she had become with this quote. She had me so convinced that all material things, all possessions, all money was evil because the curse had been on me and everything I owned and possessed. She had actually brainwashed me. And that is effectively what she did. And according to Sergeant Frank C. Walker of the Illinois State Police, in regards to the people who commit these crimes, 
the people who scam people out of their money, and the people who are scammed. Uh, this is a quote from him. He says, the crime that they are committing is that they are taking valuables from people from the means of deception. But the majority of the people would just as soon cut their losses and not come forward. They do not want to suffer the embarrassment of the community or of their peers or of their family. The embarrassment is hard to overcome. And I can imagine that. I mean, I can imagine for me, like with all my hard-earned money and I just <clears throat> start going to see some some psychic or something that's going to make all my problems better and then, you know, it turns out to be a big scam and I lose all this money. I mean, I could see my parents being the first people that would just give me hell for it, you know, like, Josh, yeah. come on, you know, like, and yeah, it, 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 you know, you would almost just as rather tell them that you had a drug problem and that's where all the money went before you told them that you believed in some psychic who said the devil was after you and a curse was put on you. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, people, I mean, people I can look get at it. like you're crazy or, you know, how could you do that? I mean, that's just dumb. You should know better. Yeah, because so, that, that would be uh, the first thing that would come to everyone's the tip of their tongue would be like, how could how could you be so stupid? You know, that and, and you know, nobody particularly wants to be called stupid, even if they know well, yeah, they did like, a stupid thing. Yeah, like I said, it's it's the situation that they're in uh, um, when someone is in a desperate situation when they're in dire straits they're very vulnerable they're at their most vulnerable point and that's when these scam artists swoop in and steal these people's money and that's that's when these people hand them their money so what ended up happening to this lady so joan gave lena marie in total one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in money and jewelry which is an astonishing amount of money and you would think that it would be very easy not to be scammed out of large amounts of money, like we were saying, for a fortune scaler, for a fortune teller scam of all things. Skeller. That's very <laughs> but even Karen, thing, Mike. Yeah, the skeleton. Uh, but even Karen admits that it's hard to believe she was scammed. According to her, I'm a college-educated person. I'm a professional. I've seen enough news reports. I've lived in the world long enough to know what real crime is and that people in any opportunity are very willing to steal your money. And I cannot believe that I was a victim of this crime. I feel like the stupidest person on earth. She even admits that the $4,000 she gave to Anne that was thrown off the bridge was folded in the handkerchief multiple times and that she actually never saw the money get thrown off the bridge in the first place because she had her eyes closed in prayer. <laughs> God, yeah. Joan and Karen, yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, I I know that feeling, you know. I know the feeling of just being ripped off, you know, not to that extent, but yeah, it's it's one of those things to where like when when you finally do realize that you have in fact been ripped off, like everything starts making sense, like all that stuff, you know. Because the guy who stole my guitar, there was all these signs that he had done, you know, that that the guitar was gone. Because I'd start being yeah. like, hey man, uh, you know, just bring the guitar next time. You come over, and, and there was always a reason why he couldn't bring it, but at the time, I, I, I didn't really think anything of it until I finally demanded, hey, dude, for real, like, where's my guitar? And then that's when all the uh, all the rigmarole started that I had to go through. So, yeah, I know yeah. the feeling, man. Then you start, like, adding up everything that's been going on the last few months of your life. You're like, oh, that explains that, yeah. and that explains that, and yeah, it's a bad feeling. And then the light bulb goes off in your head. Mm -hmm. It's got to be an awful feeling, especially if you're the one that's been scammed. And, and I can see why some people just want to keep that private. <laughs> they don't want people to know about that. 
because that is that's embarrassing that makes you look like the stupidest person on, on earth it really does mm-hmm. or one of the stupidest people on earth so joan and karen are just one of many gullible vulnerable victims who have been scammed out of millions of dollars jewelry and other valuables over the years by charismatic enthusiastic and manipulative scam artists so next time you go go to get your fortune told make sure you don't lose it so apparently uh the original air date for this segment was uh, november 15th 1989 oh hey november uh it's been unresolved, sadly, uh, but Wilson and an accomplice, Joe Marks, were later arrested in connection with the scams, but Corcelli was never caught. However, the statute of limitations has expired in this case, and she is no longer wanted by authorities. Damn. Although authorities have also noted that they lack confidence that Corcelli has gone straight and may be continuing to operate under the like- likely the possible pseudonym Mrs. Calvin, uh, which is the one that her mother was going under. So, should Corcelli be continuing in fraudulent affairs, this will continue, constitute a whole new crime and resume the search. Statute of limitations are a funny thing, because, you know, you, you'd think that, that they would eventually, uh, or you'd think on certain certain things, like a grand theft, you know, they wouldn't run out, but apparently they do. Yeah. That's And this is a little, uh, quote, this is an article from February 11, 1988, it was from uh, the Associated Press's news archive, and it was talking about the case in Peoria, Illinois. An elderly woman turned over thousands of dollars jewelry and a new car to fortune tellers promising eternal salvation and release from curses in a scheme that may involve many victims, authorities said. And I love the, the title of this article. It says, Fortune Tellers Charged with Fraud for Promising Eternal Salvation. <laughs> Charges have been filed against three people and one arrest has been made. East Peoria Detective Steve De- Deathridge. 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 Dang. Yeah, Deathridge. Yeah. <laughs> meet, you know, you've all heard of Melissa Etheridge. We'll meet. What's his first name? Steve Deathridge. Meet Steve <laughs> Deathridge. He's doing heavy metal covers of Melissa Etheridge songs all night. So, and, and uh, they are playing at karaoke bars uh, around in Jacksonville. Yeah, probably. <laughs> So, uh, Steve Deathridge, that is an awesome last name. That is. He said, Wednesday, police were still searching for the two others. I don't know how many victims are involved, Deathridge said. We're starting to get a lot of calls all of a sudden. With all the victims we're going to have, I'd estimate the losses will be more than $100,000. They were. It was $600,000. Felony theft warrants carrying bonds of $100,000 each have been issued against Anne L. Corcelli and Marie Lena Wilson and Joel Marks, both of Galesburg. The charges filed Tuesday in the Peoria County alleged the three were involved in an ongoing theft from an unidentified elderly Peoria woman from June 1986 to January 1988. So this woman was scammed, uh, who uh, the show called Joan, was scammed for two years. Two years this went on. Convictions on the charges carry penalties of two to five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Two to five years, that's not long enough to me for someone who no, took... Not at all everything from somebody prosecutors alleged that the three obtained money jewelry and a new car from the woman by deception they took a little bit of everything said darren kraus an assistant state attorney in charge of the case the victims of these people are not crazy this is not insanity they're just vulnerable for some reason the three promised they could raise the souls of her two oh i didn't remember that they didn't talk about this in the 
the three promise the promise that they could raise the souls of her two deceased husbands from hell to heaven and help her money multiply if she did as she was told oh my god also, Marks and Wilson were charged with one count of conspiracy to commit theft resulting from an incident Saturday in which they are accused of ordering the woman to bring them $300. Police declined to release further details. Only Marks has been arrested. The others vanished when they began to suspect a police investigation, Deathridge said. They prey on people, mainly elderly women, who they catch in an emotional state like after a death in the family, Deathridge said. They tell these people, they tell these women they are cursed and convince them that they need a fortune teller's help. And money is usually the power to release the curse. Some people just flat believe in fortune telling. Yeah, I I don't know, man. This 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 lady's a piece of crap. I mean, she goes right up in the yeah. Hall of Fame with Nelson DeCloud and uh, yeah. Mike, Mike well, uh, Morris. Both her and her daughter. Scumbag. Yeah, scumbags. Um, that yeah, I don't I don't really have anything else to say about her. I, I really don't want, even want to hear about her anymore because it just <laughs> makes me you know yeah I just keep saying oh my god oh my god oh my you know because it's like that's the only reaction I can have. It's to just infuriating. Yeah. So that was that was a that was an interesting fraud segment. Um, again, I don't know why there wasn't a fraud DVD on the Ultimate Collection. Um, there, these are some great cases. Um, that was a good that was a good pick. I mean, you know, obviously good for the you know fascination factor of of human interaction and the psychology of human beings and how people would just believe. You know, the devil is in this shoebox full of dirt in your garage. Yeah, just it's it's crazy. But she would have been more proactive planting some seeds in that uh, box of dirt rather than um, <laughs> trusting a psychic. <laughs> yeah. Moving on to our last segment of this episode, it's called The Entity. I wanted to put some kind of a paranormal thing on uh, this post-Halloween episode of Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. Um, this is a case I've always really liked. Um, it's, it's kind of shorter. It's kind of more... Um, you don't really see anything in this one. It's more, uh, yeah. it's an auditory thing. Um, uh-huh. So I always thought it was super interesting, and I, I, I don't know. I just some segments just stick out to, to me, and this one always stuck out to me. I remember this one as as a kid watching this one on when the Li- Lifetime was doing their reruns or wh- whatever, and I remember yeah. this one. And... It stuck out to me when I watched the ghost segments, you know, on the box set. Yeah. Uh, even even when I first uh, saw the the segments on the set like i think i checked out from the library years ago and this one always kind of stood out to me because i guess the location i thought was pretty it was effectively eerie yeah you know this little farm farmhouse this ranch somewhere you know little house in a ranch somewhere in the middle of nowhere in texas you know so and the fact that it was these cowboys who were talking about yeah and you know I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna do these guys like I did Mike Morris. Okay, I don't want to slap their faces. Like these seem like uh, fine gentlemen, as far as I'm concerned. You know, they seem like good old boys. Just a good old boy, not mean and no harm. Anyway, um, the less I sing, the better off all of you are. Um, so it started out as a simple business venture. In June of 1995, three business partners took over a 3,000-acre ranch in the Texas Hill Country. They planned to sublease the game-rich land to hunters. Hunters. I said that. Felt like I said that weird. Anyway. While they got things rolling, the three cowboys moved into the main building. Constructed in the 1950s, this was just a run-of-the-mill cottage. Could any house be more ordinary? Well, in the first night, the boys discovered they had company. Heavy-footed company. 
one of the boys, Johnny, said, "Sounded as if we. It sounded as if it was off in the distance, and each time it made a step, you could hear the individual steps it would make. In my mind, I didn't want to consider the fact that it might be a ghost or something of that nature. Almost every night, there was something new: crashing footsteps, thunderous blows against the walls or ceilings. They never saw a ghost, but they heard plenty." One of the cowboys, Bobby, had a most unnerving experience, which his partner slept through. I immediately picked the pistol up and got to my feet. It sounded like a wooden chair had just been kicked across the floor. As Bobby went into the kitchen to investigate, he saw nothing. Everything was just as it should be. All the chairs were still there. Everything was normal. This thing, whatever it is, it would not let you rest. Just about the time you doze off, it hit the wall. And I, when I say hit, I mean it would clobber it. And the sound the sound design that they did on this segment was really good because yeah. they, they really conveyed those sounds. Like, I mean, just think of the, just a, say you're in a an echoey house with, you know, just like plaster walls or whatever, and just someone just taking a sledgehammer to the wall or as hard as they could, or a chair just being, just blown, yeah. That, but times like a hundred, <laughs> um, yeah, or times ten. I don't know. Or taking a, ch a wooden chair and just—I like, don't have a hammer, so yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well you just—you heard Mike's fury just then, and you should be intimidated. Uh, Mike, Mike just flew off the handle just then at, at me. That was directed towards me. <laughs> no. Um. So this would continue in the hours before dawn every night. Sledgehammer blows that smash the walls. Pounding footsteps that threatened to snap through the floorboards or break through the ceiling. Sometimes everyone heard it. Other times it would only tor torment one of the cowboys. This was a night I was here by myself and it didn't say Johnny. It said Johnny. Then I looked around and the room was cold as ice. Cold is often associated with ghostly phenomena. I will yeah. point out that is that mm -hmm. is a common theme that I that I have learned from not only watching these unsolved mystery shows, but you can look at things like The Sixth Sense, and you know it's a movie, so it's got to be true. Um, another, oh yeah, before I move on, why the hell after hearing all these sounds would this guy spend a night there by himself? That was like one of the yeah. that was one of the details yeah. that I caught. It, it, it go, you know, it was like he was just saying, "This was a night I was here by myself." It's like, hold the phone right there, buddy. Why are you spending a night by yourself? Out like balls of steel on this man, Johnny. Well, he's a cowboy, so you know he's That's probably true. he did, he wanted to make sure you know that it wasn't in his head, uh, or you know that there really was something to this, or he wanted to prove to himself that he can handle it. You know, a lot of cowboys are like that. They're you know kind of you know. The epitome of masculinity, you know, very, very, uh, yeah, you know, they're, they're tough. And I could totally see a cowboy, you know, being like, well, I ain't afraid no ghost. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, there's probably some of that uh, bravado going into, into play as well. So another night, Bobby woke up sensing something next to him. Probably two or three in the morning... Uh, and the bed just mashed down, straight down like someone had stepped on it. And the show did a really good job of making the bed mash down as a practical effect. Yeah. Um, I can't help but to think this would just be computer-generated somehow nowadays if it was to be attempted. Or they'd just add uh, really bad editing and, and flashy cuts and and uh, all kinds of uh, Music filters. Music yeah. 
music steps. <laughs> bling, ding, can you, ding, ding. Can you, can you imagine if this this case is covered on that uh, really awful ghost show you you talked about on your recent video? Yeah, they did for your YouTube channel. Or or <laughs> the Farina version of Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. God, I don't even want to think about it, dude. It, it it really upsets me every time I think about what they did to the with the revamp. That's the real horror show. That's yeah. the real horror story. God. That's the real thing that keeps Josh up at night. It does. <laughs> Although, I, again, I gotta say, Dennis Farina was a, a good actor, and he was kind of a badass in his own right. He just was not the right fit for that show at all. Oh. Um, Mike, the third cowboy, had his own experience. Approximately three or four in the morning, my right knee woke me up, and it was a pain I had never felt before. It was almost like someone was sitting on my knee. I went to roll off the bed, and my leg was in the same position it was. And I looked, and I couldn't see nobody sitting there. So all I could do was just go, hey, you know, just start waving my other leg like, hey, get off. And the minute I got up and walked around, it felt fine. So that's creepy. It's as if somebody yeah. had, was sitting on his leg, and then he, you know. And that's that is probably... I mean, if unless you count the bed mashing down with, with yeah. uh, Bobby, those are probably the only two physical like yeah. things that happened. Everything else was all auditory. There are some kind of crazy things, though, that auditory hallucinations can do. They can actually end up making you hallucinate things yeah, that are happening that are don't aren't having to do with sound, like your body and things like that. That's true. Um, so the brain is pretty amazing. We still haven't explained everything that it does or everything that it's capable of or everything that it isn't capable of. And so sometimes the, these type of experiences, sometimes they, they, they feel very real, but sometimes they do have some actual real explanation behind it. This particular case, and our, our, our good friend Dr. William Roll will show up later, <laughs> and this particular case, I kind of agree with him, where I don't necessarily, I'd say it's probably a higher chance that this is just some auditory hallucinations caused by some kind of natural uh, explanation than it is, you know, a bona fide paranormal case. But it's still interesting regardless. So finally, Mike's sisters decide to pay a visit to the ranch house to check out the noises for themselves. And, you know, one of them was quoting saying, I didn't know what I expected, maybe just to hear a little bump and there'd be some kind of logical explanation for it, which is kind of like what I would think, too, if I was to go out like, okay, you know, let's there, there's got to be something these three doofuses aren't, you know, figuring out that I can figure out. But short, yeah. shortly after they laid in bed, though, they started to hear the noises. And um, again, the show just did a great job of like these these two women are in this bedroom and all of a sudden, you know. It's just it, it just sounds like you know all hell is breaking loose yeah. in that room. I mean that that would be terrifying. And absolutely, she says it was so unreal that getting help or calling for my brother was not an option. It was like I was trapped. Now that I don't really understand, unless yeah. you were just unless you were just so gripped in fear that you feel like even making a noise might make it worse. Like whatever the thing is, you're gonna if you call for help, you might anger it and it might do it might kill you. Or I that I yeah. understand, I guess to a certain extent, because sometimes you can be so afraid that you don't want to you know escalate anything by yelling or anything like that. Um, and almost like comically, according to Mike, he said. Uh, 
he said that night i didn't hear anything <laughs> like they literally they interviewed the sisters talking about all this <laughs> stuff and then they just cut to mike and he goes that night i didn't hear anything <laughs> but were, he goes but there was no doubt by the expression on their face that they had been through something and they just wanted to get the hell out of there the next day that kind of ties into some things too sometimes people subconsciously they want to believe in something so badly that they subconsciously trick their brain into imagining into seeing into hearing these things that aren't really necessarily there i mean that kind of ties into the whole thing where mike didn't hear anything but they did yeah that's uh, yeah i mean it kind of explains a phenomena that that I'm I'm about to uh, describe here. Unsolved Mysteries decided to try to find out just what was happening at that ranch house, so they brought in parapsychologist uh, Dr. William Roll. This guy was used on more ghost segments than uh, I think Alex Trebek has hosted uh, Jeopardy. Uh, this guy William Rule was used so much on this show he would be a great interview as well but man you you think Don was older William Rule I think has got to be in his 90s at this point if yeah. if, if not a centaurian or centurion whatever the yeah. centaurian he was, he was used a lot on sightings as well so yeah, uh, William Roll was this kind of like, Ger- to me it sounds like German derivative based off his accent some kind of German you know uh, and he was um he, any, of the, any of these cases, he'd always show up. But he was very scientific about everything. You know, that's what I liked about That's probably why they used him so much. Um, so they brought in video cameras and monitoring devices uh, such as EMF meters. Essentially the same to- tools that ghost hunting shows use is the, the tools that these guys brought in. Um, again, EM- EMF meter. Uh, I just did a whole episode about this on my YouTube channel, by the way, about ghost shows, where I review the ghost shows or whatever. Um youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts um and, <laughs> and EMF, self-promotion over yeah, here why not an emf meter is uh it measures electromagnetic frequencies which are made by they can be made by man-made things but they can also uh allegedly be made from um paranormal activity as well so if the meter starts going uh you know off the uh, like just haywire or whatever off the charts then uh, that can be associated with um, some kind of a paranormal activity, which paranormal activity does not always mean ghosts. It means paranormal, like not yeah. not so it's very not normal. normal. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Uh, that's that's it's, that's something that a lot of people nowadays don't understand. Right. You just throw around paranormal activity as if oh, it just means ghosts. So auditory no, means... hallucinations could be par- still be uh, filed under paranormal activity. Yeah. So uh, they were able to record, according to William Roll here, they were able to record bangs and booms. The most striking of these was associated with a sudden increase in the magnetic fields in the house. So uh, they don't say this on the show, but essentially I can imagine what would happen is they would have their EMF meter out, and when these bangs and booms would happen, the EMF meter would jump up. Dr. Mm -hmm. Roll believes that these effects could be caused by the Pelchi effect. According to Dr. Roll, this can occur when water seeps between underground slabs of limestone. This not only creates noise, but also creates an electromagnetic field that causes the human brain to experience all kinds of psychological effects. Is, Is it a trick of the mind? To those who've heard it, not by a long shot. And then Johnny, one of the cowboys, closes this out really well. He goes... All I can say is, come on over, and we'll fix you up. <laughs> you're, you're more than welcome if that's what you want to do. It won't take long. Made a believer out of me real quick. It'll make a believer out of you. 
and that's how they end the segment. I thought, was, I thought it was good ending. Yeah, that was a great way to end it. I always remember that. It's like, come on over. Yeah, we'll fix you up if that's what you want to do. Just God, again, it just reminds me of my dad so much, you know, because like, yeah. he kind of kind of talks. Like so, that. but I, I I I side with William Roll here because totally, it, yeah, because it, it absolutely could. It, it would absolutely feel real to you, but it it more than likely is still just a hallucination caused by some natural naturally occurring uh thing and that, that's that's crazy the the human brain is is some really is a it's another great unknown and so is in some ways the human body i mean the we know a lot of things about the body but there's other things that we don't know yet and it's kind of like our own bodies are kind of like the ocean when it comes to all these different undiscovered things and and elements and, and stuff within it and it would make sense that we do, since we are electrical, we do have a lot of electricity actually surging through our bodies, which is crazy to think about, isn't it? Yeah. I think that, you know, that we are electrical, you know, our heart has this electricity and stuff like that. That's why people brought back to life by the electricity is because there's actual natural bio, you know, energy, you know, created in our bodies. So it would kind of make sense that if there was some problems something was messing with the magnetic fields and and causing you know fluctuations in our brains and the magnetic fields you know and the energy that goes through our brains and synapses and things like that it would make sense that weird things would happen because it's an abnormal uh uh, event it's uh, it's causing abnormal uh, behavior in the brain which is causing uh, abnormal situations and and abnormal uh things that you are seeing and feeling and experiencing yeah now if these guys say got up and checked out the kitchen and there were holes in the wall and there was a broken yeah. chair and they had the noises that coincided with that but no that's like a poltergeist yeah that, that's 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 something where i could say okay you know i could give a little bit more credence to that but you know as one of the you know to kind of paraphrase one of the skeptics on i believe it was on the uh bentwaters ufo uh segment he was saying human perception is a very shallow fickle thing and, and it is our perception is yeah. very it's very shallow i mean uh, what we perceive and what is actually true it's it's are two totally different things a lot of times and I mean, if you think your percep your perception is is a hundred percent dead on, just do some kind of a drug. Just smoke weed. Just take a halluc- yeah. a hallucinogenic drug and see how the perception in your brain is dramatically altered. I mean, hell, even get drunk and see how your yeah. perception is altered. What were you insinuating that they were drunk and they were high, and that's why they <laughs> they actually they went up there they for did. they went up there for a, a, a heroin weekend. You know, just they're just gonna <laughs> have them a good old shooting gallery. That's what that house was. It was going to be a drug den. This all ties into Chuck Morgan and ah, oh, the triangle. It's completing itself. Triggered. Triggered. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, human perception is a very fickle thing. And you know, uh, would I want to spend the night there? No, because I no. know that there's this pelchy effect going on that's making people trip balls when they're in this house. Yeah. And if they saw an apparition, that too would also make me think that maybe that is more more of a haunting um but then again maybe there could be hallucinations caused by that as well you know maybe you could see some apparition or something because of the pelchy effect but i don't think i've ever read instances 
where people have seen apparitions because of the Pelchi effect. Well, you know, if we're talking electromagnetic fields in the brain, then it, it, it's, it, it, it could be... It's a possibility. If it's affecting the auditory nerve, who's to say it can't affect the se the sensory nerve and the uh, optical nerve? You know. To well, I think it was affecting the, the sensory, obviously, because the guy felt like his le his leg wouldn't move and felt like somebody was sitting on top of it. And then so. the optical nerve when he sees the bed mat. I mean, who knows? Or 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 maybe. Or maybe it is. Maybe, maybe there it is. Happen. Yeah, maybe there is. That house is haunted. You know, maybe. Maybe it's haunted and there is a peltry effect going. <laughs> And Bigfoot was the one beating on the walls, and there was a gray that was, um, you know, doing something. He was organizing the whole thing. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to uh, make... It's just funny, the, the thought of there was a Pelchi effect, and it was haunted, so they were doubly screwed. <laughs> <laughs> or as the word I like to make up, that I made up a few weeks ago, triply screwed. Um, you know, triply, like the city in uh, what, whatever, triply... Uh, I, I, I don't know where it's at. I'm not going to try to start sounding like i know things at this point um so yeah that's all we got for this uh this episode i believe um is uh i guess uh, just stay tuned for the hey you know i'm gonna try to talk to the uh tallman daughter and you know get the scoop on that look out for that if you want to uh watch me and mike uh separately but equal um you can find mike on youtube.com slash ocp communications um, what's something recent that you've done on there that you just want to tease people? Well, I just I just I just reviewed a pretty forgettable uh, movie called Nightlight, which is where these bunch of teenagers that go into some woods and, and it's supposedly you know there's people don't escape, you know they never leave the woods or whatever. They still decide to go to the woods anyway and ignore the warnings and play some flashlight games. Well, there's only like one likable character; the rest of them are cannon fodder. But it was kind of an interesting thing where the film, a lot of the film took place from the point of view of the flashlights. Oh my gosh. But they like to call it a found footage movie, but it's not really. It's a, unless there were cameras and all these flashlights. Not that great of a film, and, but, you know, hey, you know, I've seen worse. But that's not saying much. It's not an endorsement or anything. It's not like <laughs> a ringing endorsement. Oh, it's not the worst film ever, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and next up I got Lights Out, which is a film that came out this year that I thought was, it was alright, I liked it okay. And then I'm actually going to be, uh, tackling the Child's Play films. Ooh. So if, if you are a fan of Chucky and, and Child's Play and, and that series, you know, keep it, you know, give me a, you know, sub, give me a sub. <laughs> or, or at least give it a watch. Um, or at least give it a watch and, and a like. My channel, so, I just dropped a, a video um, uh, like a week ago. I I compare um, all the ghost shows. Go my, I thought it was really great. Thanks. So. Yeah, I, I appreciate that comment you left, by the way, too. That was really nice of you. Um, yeah, I, I'm talking about my ghost story, ghost adventures, ghost hunters, paranormal witness, a haunting. All the ghost shows you remember, I compare and all, you know contrast them and dig into them and you know i i tend to uh probably foolishly I, I put a lot way more production value in my videos than the view counts i end up getting for said production so it, they're all they're always really well produced and there's little ske skits and sketches and stuff like that in in there so uh if you want to head over to my channel it's uh youtube.com slash dancing don't Ghosts. play marimba music around josh don't do it or i will shoot you that's what at least that's, <laughs> and then you'll come back and kill me I just, just spoiled the video there. Um, 